morning to our family. Um, I would invite you to turn to Matthew 16. I've said that for, we've said that for many weeks in a row now. We're actually going to be finishing up chapter 16 of uh, Matthew today. And as you're finding your place there, I want to repeat something I said last week that is at least of interest to me and I think is noteworthy that Matt, Matthew's trying to make a point here. And that is, this, this is a literal turning point for Jesus in his ministry. Um, we saw last week Peter's profound declaration of Jesus as the Messiah, the, the, the son of the living God. And um, this week we'll see there's actually some nuance to that that Peter missed and some correction that has to happen. But overall we step back and there's this scene of Jesus instructing his disciples and them coming to a deeper awareness of who he truly is. And it's at this point that Jesus now turns his gaze with a laser-like focus for Jerusalem and the cross. He will ultimately die for the sins of the world. And, and I don't think it's coincidence. The disciples came to this realization and at this juncture in the road, Jesus decides to turn toward Jerusalem and the cross. There's a correlation between these two things, I believe. I wondered to myself as I thought more about this, if the disciples had taken five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years to come to this place of realization of who Jesus was as the Messiah, Jesus have just kept ministering and teaching and preaching and healing all the while, waiting for them to come to this place of realization. And the reason I think this is significant is because I think he would have, hypothetically. So I think the conclusion is this, while God doesn't need us to accomplish his will of salvation, he does that exclusively through Jesus. All the work was accomplished through Christ on the cross. At the same time, he's lovingly and mercifully decided that he's going to use us to accomplish his will of spreading the message of the cross to the world around us. And to me, it just goes to show you the value that God places on his people, you and I, who he's called to be a part of his mission. So hear this, the implication, I think, of this direct correlation between the profession of faith on the part of Peter and the disciples and Jesus turning now towards the cross is that in your pursuit, Jesus, personally, really is an impact on the trajectory of God's mission in the world. Your pursuit of Jesus really does impact God's mission in the world around you. Read about the second half of this same scene of Jesus and Peter coming to a deeper understanding of who Jesus really is in Matthew 16, starting in verse 21 through the end of the chapter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He that is Jesus turned and said to Peter, Behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what, is it, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The big idea 
from our passage for today that we'll look to unpack is this. The essence of following Jesus is in learning that suffering precedes glory. Last week, Peter discerned the glory of who Jesus was without discerning and understanding the suffering that had to precede that glory. The supporting ideas that are gonna get us to that place of the big idea today. First, we're gonna look at how taking up a cross is learned for followers of Jesus. This is a grace on God's part. Coming to this realization is a process and God knows that. Secondly, we're gonna look at how taking up a cross is inescapable for followers of Jesus. It comes with the territory. There's no way of avoiding it. Thirdly, taking up a cross is hope-filled for followers of Jesus. It's not all gloom and doom. It's Suffering just precedes the glory that's to come. So let's start off with that first point, taking up a cross is learned for followers of Jesus. As I alluded to, uh, this has been an occasion of highs and lows, or one extreme high and one extreme low for Peter. If you were here last week, we went into detail about Jesus's commendation of Peter's profession of faith. He got some deeply profound things right about who Jesus was this week, Perhaps Peter experiences an all-time low in his walk with his friend and his Lord, Jesus, where Jesus actually equates him on some level, Satan, and what Satan is trying to accomplish through his understanding of Jesus at this point. It's a roller coaster ride in this one scene for Peter. Going on here, and again, we touched on this last week, is that for Peter and for many, if not all, of the Jews in that day, it was inconceivable in their minds that the Jewish Messiah would suffer, to mention die. There was a preconception that was held by the Jews in that day that victory that would be brought about the Messiah would come through the death of the enemy, not the death of their champion. And yet that seems to be what Jesus was alluding to here. There's a paradox that's counterintuitive for most that Jesus was introducing to his disciples, and that is this paradox that suffering precedes glory. And so what we see here is the beginning of a process in which Jesus understood he, need, he was going to need to reprogram the disciples' understanding of who he truly was. I want to point out here that I, I do believe that there's a, a big part of Peter that was sincere here, that this wasn't just manipulative or selfish or for his own comfort, but he sincerely believed that Jesus was in the wrong to possibly subject himself to suffering and especially death. Point this out to say this, that it's, it's a scary thing in the sense that we can be sincere about something and actually be sincerely wrong as Peter was. It's such a characteristic for the ethos of our culture that we live in today where oftentimes the metric for truth that we live by is as long as you're passionate about something and feel it deeply, it must be true. Passion isn't wrong in and of itself. Passion can be such a good thing, but passion for the wrong things is dangerous because it leads to blindness. Epitomized here by Peter, the kind of blindness that's showcased in him pulling God aside and while acknowledging him as Lord, a term of authority that he's supposedly submitting himself to, he nonetheless proceeds to tell Jesus that he is wrong because Peter, in his own mind, can't fathom how this could be right and good. Blindness. And it's dangerous because it can feel so right, but at the same time, we can unwittingly be in league with Satan, playing right into his hand, doing his bidding, which Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, is to steal, to kill, and destroy. Peter was doing this very thing. Now, Jesus, in his response to Peter's rebuke of him, 
Peter wasn't literally Satan when he said this, but Peter was acting the part. He was complicit here in Satan's agenda. So the one whom Jesus called the rock, the foundation upon whom he would build his church last week, now becomes a different kind of a stone, a stumbling stone, uh, keeping and preventing Jesus from his ultimate path that would bring life. Hindrance in your English Standard Version, if that's the translation that you're using, literally in the Greek, stumbling stone. Need to be that kind of stone instead of the foundation that Jesus was looking to build upon that he talked about last week. The question I want to bring before you guys that I've been contemplating this week, and it's not an easy one, but it's an important one, and that is where may your insistence that things should be a certain way actually be a stumbling block to where God wants to bring life? See, if one of Jesus' closest disciples, not just that, but the one upon whom he said he would build his church could get this wrong, what makes us think that, we're, think that we're immune to having places in our own journey and pilgrimage following Jesus where we could be sincere but sincerely wrong? So what I want to do is something that oftentimes we've done in the past at the end, which is I want to create a little bit of space just for the next minute or so. You to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your life if there is a place where this is true. Knowing that his work is to bring about life, death, if it's hard to hear. Here's the question again. Where might my insistence or insistence that things should be a certain way actually be a hindrance to where God wants to bring true life? The next minute or so, allow the Spirit to speak. That might be. I'm tempted to say that it can oftentimes take more than a minute to hear God's voice when you're quietly availing yourself to him because that might be me projecting upon you. I'm a bit of a slow processor, but he reminded me about a month ago um, when I was in a conversation with somebody else and they asked me to just pause and reflect upon the answer to a certain question. And they said, you have 15 seconds and then I'm gonna ask you for an answer. And it's funny because with great clarity, God, I believe, brought forth an answer. Um, sometimes we uh, can pigeonhole ourselves uh, and even God um, but it's good to take moments, even if it is just a minute here and there, and just open yourself up and say, God, is there something you want to show me? And he may not have in, in, these, in these last moments, but I encourage you to, to con continue to ask this question of yourself this week. I think it's an important one. I think it's also one that can cause some fear and trembling because it's a loaded question. Oftentimes what God might expose through a question like that is something we hold near and dear to our hearts. Well, I just want to say this is where trusting that God is good, truly good, is so important. Trusting that God is never going to show you something that is hard for you to hear because he wants to make you feel bad or because he wants to take something away from you that's truly for your good. Set up front, as if as we set up front, the essence of following after Jesus is learning that suffering precedes glory. It's a really, really hard thing to learn. The key of moving forward in those things is trusting that God is good because nobody's natural inclination is to want to suffer. Just encourage you to continue pondering that question week. What I want to do now is just put ourselves in Peter's shoes for a moment because we're more like him than we are different from him, I would imagine. And as I'd mentioned up at, at the front end here, this was a, a, an ultimate low light for Peter in his walk with Jesus. Have a hard time imagining, but can to some extent what it would be like to have the person you most revere and love and respect say something so devastatingly hard. But what I also want you to see, and what I want to say here, Jesus' intent here was not to hurt Peter, but was ultimately to strengthen him 
and to bring life. He saw, in fact, that if Peter held to that current view that he was holding, he would just continue on a path that would ultimately bring death. God will speak and do hard things in our life, bring about change of direction that will lead to life instead. One of the places that this comes through so clearly and is helpful to be reminded is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 6. Here the author of Hebrews has this to say. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation dresses you as sons? Exhortation is like a hard challenge. Exhortation is this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It continues in verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. Godly correction in our lives often hurts and cuts deeply. It's always fueled by love, and its purpose is always for our good and to bring about life. The way that I know that this is true as I look at the broader context of Matthew's gospel is by the patience that Jesus has with Peter here over the long haul and with all of his disciples. Jesus didn't just give Peter the boot at this point for having gotten it so wrong. He didn't cut him loose. The way, here's how you know if somebody's words that are hard to hear are rooted in love, accompanied by ongoing presence. They're willing to say not only the hard thing to you, but to accompany you on the painful journey of growth. Jesus was willing to do this with Peter. Verse 21, Matthew, with the vantage point of hindsight, knowing what was to come, says this. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must suffer many things and be killed. Matthew knew, with the vantage point of hindsight, this was just the first of many occurrences in which Jesus is going to impress this truth upon Peter and the rest of the disciples. We talked a few weeks ago about what characterized Jesus's ministry, the proactive versus the reactive, the instances in which he initiates with intent to teach and then which he just responds to others' initiation and how that latter grouping is actually the more prolific grouping, grouping in Jesus' ministry. More oftentimes, he's reacting, responding to others' initiating and, or, and ministry is organic in that way. The majority of the time when he's proactive, it's in instructing his disciples. There's about 12 instances between now and the end of Matthew's gospel where he's proactively teaching them and instructing them. And by far the majority of those, about eight or so, focused upon and reinforcing this idea that suffering precedes glory. Jesus demonstrated for all of us that the most important things, often the hardest to grasp, and the most important things bear repeating. And good teachers are patient with their pupils, with their disciples, because they know that these things are going to take time again. There's a couple implications here. One is for you and I here this morning, and that is that God is likely far more patient with you than you give him credit for. And if you are still on this journey, tracking with Jesus, doing your best to do what he says here, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him, but you've counted yourself out, God must have cut me loose at this point, I can guarantee you that that is not true because he is far more patient with you than probably you believe. But there's an implication as well for those around you. And that is, be patient with them. Be patient with those that God has put in your life 
that you have the ability to influence or that he specifically called you to disciple in some way or just generally in your, in your relationships. But let me expand upon that because simply knowing the principle that we're called to be patient in our relationships, that is a fruit of the spirit after all, probably isn't gonna get you very far down that road. <clears throat> the thing that gets you endurance, the journey of being patient in discipling those God's put in your life. When you become aware personally how painfully slow the process of sanctification has been in your own life. How much patience God has extended toward you. By that, I don't necessarily mean that you're constantly aware of some indwelling sin that you've not dealt with. What I mean is, if you've journeyed with Jesus for any length of time, you know how many layers of the onion he has peeled back to reveal what you've not yet understood, revealed where sin is still there and rebellion against him is still there, where a lack of holiness still exists. So out of that humility, if we're not aware of anything present, we're able to be patient with those that aren't showing the kind of change we would hope for right now around us. So the first idea here, the first principle is that taking up a cross uh, is learned for followers of Jesus. The process requires patience on God's part, and I'm thankful for that. Second one is that taking up a cross is inescapable for followers of Jesus. Verse 24, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. First, just a brief word on what it means to take up our cross or what the cross was. It's probably something that's meaning has been lost. I shouldn't say probably, it of course has. As we don't live with right in our front of our faces the form of capital punishment of crucifixion in our own day. But this was by far the most cruel form of execution that was implemented by the Romans in Jesus's day, and this would have been shocking for the disciples to hear. What happened is you would be nailed to a cross, ultimately over the course of many hours would asphyxiate. You would no longer be able to breathe because the only way you could breathe is by the nails that were piercing your hands and feet, push and pull yourself up to get your next, next breath. And if you made it long enough, then a Roman soldier would probably come along, break your legs, and finish the job. It was crucifixion, a horrible form of death that involved physical suffering to the nth degree. Crucifixion also came with something else. It came with a social stigma of shame attached to it because all of this happened in public. See, the Jews believed that if you were crucified, you were cursed. You were the lowest of the low. You must have done something horrible and awful. The shame extended beyond just merely being in, in the public eye at the point of crucifixion. It actually extended to the just as public procession with the cross that you were required to carry through the streets on your way to execution. And people would be lobbing jeers and insults your way. It was a humiliating experience. The picture that Jesus was painting for his disciples here was this, of savage, savage death and public humiliation. That's what he was saying would be a part of, the, of following after him. And while that principle can be applied more broadly to our lives, as we'll talk about in a little bit, Jesus didn't mean less here than literal death. As 11 of the 12 disciples find out as they would die as martyrs for Jesus. So back to this second point of taking up the cross is inescapable for followers of Jesus. See, what Jesus is saying is that suffering is not an option for those who follow him. For Jesus' part himself, in verse 21, we're told that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things 
and be killed. Unless we think, well, Jesus was unique in that way, of course, because he was the son of God and the Messiah. Remember his words in John chapter 15, 20, when he says this to his disciples, servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. At the same time, and more kind of to the point of what Jesus is immediately saying in our passage at hand, it's a willingness to suffer for Jesus that he's got in view here. He's saying it's a willingness to suffer for me that is a prerequisite to following me. Chances are you're not going to suffer for Jesus. You're not going to walk the path of the cross if you haven't decided ahead of time that you're willing to do so. Verse 24, when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That word would there, that's a verb of choice. What he is saying is, has resolved to. In other words, if anyone has resolved, has decided in advance, has made the choice to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Just as Jesus must go and, and suffer and die at the hands of the leaders in Jerusalem, he is saying to his disciples who would follow him, taking up your cross is a choice that you must make. You're gonna follow after me. We have to be careful because we can easily call ourselves Christians, then effectively avoid a cross-filled life. In so doing, we may actually reveal the reality that we've never decisively decided ahead of time that we're willing to pay that price. So what does that look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus no matter the price? I think it's helpful to bring into view another passage of scripture where Jesus is teaching his disciples about what it means to be a disciple. That comes from Luke 14, verses 25 to 33, where Jesus says that before you become one of my disciples, you must count the cost. He gives a couple of analogies to help. He says, listen, if you're a builder, an architect, you're not going to start building this big project without determining in advance whether you have the resources necessary to complete it. Else you're gonna get two thirds of the way through and have a half, you know, like a building that's not complete. Do that. Then he gives another example and he says, if there are two kings and one's coming out against the other with 20,000 versus 10,000 men, that latter king is gonna actually take the time to evaluate whether he and his men have the resources, have what it takes to be able to win this battle. Jesus finishes with the point, bringing it back home to discipleship talks about what the, he says, in order to be my disciple, you must consider the potential cost in full that will be to follow after me. When he says in verse 33 this, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What does that look like? What does that mean to renounce all? Does it mean that you, you know, leave your home, you withdraw all your money from your bank account and give it away, that you essentially starve yourself to death or live on the bare minimum. of It doesn't necessarily mean that, but here's what it means. To count the cost, you assume and meditate on in advance that the cost could be total. All possessions given up, all relationships given up, all social standing that you've enjoyed given up, ultimately all of life given up. That's the expectation that Jesus lays before his disciples here. Ask them to consider the cost of following after him. This is what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross. If you're like me, you've probably come across that passage before or even now are thinking to yourself, well, I think I'm willing to do that. I wouldn't be here today if, if I wasn't, but it's, it's a hypothetical, so I can't be 100% sure. Let me just offer you something that might be a little bit more practical for you to consider here. And that is this, martyrdom 
begins in the mundane. What I mean is, if you're not willing to say no to yourself, if you're not willing to deny yourself in everyday smaller situations, then you're likely not going to be ready to take up your cross when the stakes are highest. Some questions for you to consider. Are you willing to die to yourself because of your faith? You're facing pressure from those around you, family, friends, your workplace, to conform to something that's socially acceptable. Are you willing to lose your life where sacrificial love means giving up your own desires to meet the needs and desires of those around you, perhaps your spouse or your children? Are you willing to die to yourself in the time and the talents and the possessions that God has given you, using those for the good of others around you? Unless we resolve to deny ourselves and take up our cross in these things, how can we possibly imagine that we would be able to follow Jesus into the places where the cost would be the highest possible? After all of this talk of dying to ourselves and death and necessary suffering, it could be easy to feel in this moment, man, there sure were times where Jesus was kind of macabre. He was kind of morbid, kind of dark. Well, you wouldn't be alone. I think that this is why Peter responded in the way that he did to Jesus in this moment. I think he felt similarly. But what if I told you that Jesus actually gives equal weight in this very passage we're looking at to a hope-filled future for those who follow him in the way of the cross? Would that have been your reading of this passage? Would that have been the impression that you take away? Here's, here's the thing. I think as humans, we have such an aversion to suffering I know, I am one. We often miss the beauty that God intends to bring that comes out on the other side. Some analogies that are perhaps helpful to illustrate, like seeing a forest fire is only the tragedy and only the destruction, not recognizing that on the other side of that, it has paved a way for new life to be able to spring up. It's like avoiding a surgery for fear of the pain that it would bring when the purpose of that surgery is ultimately to preserve life. Peter is so fixated on avoiding suffering that he misses the promise of new life here that Jesus gives that only comes through his death. He misses the promise of resurrection. I was, I was just fascinated by this, at the same time convicted as I identified with Peter's response and have responded this way over the years myself. Because Peter, you, Peter what he does is he fixates upon the suffering and, and instead of circling back uh, and, and saying, Jesus, wait a minute, what are you saying? You're, you're going to die, but you're going to rise again? Explain that to me. What's that all about? It's just hyper-focused upon the death. So it's easy to get fixated on suffering when we have the full picture of discipleship in view. Taking up a cross is hope-filled for those who follow after Jesus. Because the promise that Jesus makes throughout this passage that it is through death, real and true and lasting life will come. Listen, Jesus wants to prepare us and was preparing his disciples for the reality of suffering that comes with the territory of following him, but he speaks equally to the glory that awaits those who follow him. I wanna just point that out here in our closing moments. Verse 21, again, Jesus alludes to his resurrection when he says after he would suffer and be killed that on the third day he would be raised. He's saying to his disciples, listen, death isn't going to have the final say over me, and it's not going to have the final say over those of you who follow me. As he goes on in verse 25 to say that whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. And then he goes on to say in verse 27 to promise that our suffering for him 
will not go unrecognized. It says, for the Son of Man is going to come, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. See, your present suffering for Christ in whatever form that takes, not in vain. Just seize it. One day he will acknowledge it in full, and you will be rewarded for it. Finally, he gives them a glimpse of his glory even in this lifetime. He says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is one of those mysterious verses where there's been much debate over what Jesus is alluding to here. But most likely he's referring to his transfiguration in all of his glory, where he will appear on the mountaintop in the very next passage to his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And reveal his glory to them, a glimpse of it ahead of time. Or, if it's not that, many scholars would say, well, it's probably referring to the resurrection of Jesus, where all of the disciples will be privy to the glory of the resurrection of the Son of God, with the exception of Judas, of course, who betrayed Jesus. Suffering precedes glory. That is the principle here that we've been talking about. But God is also so good that he gives us tastes of that glory in advance on this side of eternity. I mean, you and I, we all could attest to that in various forms, our own salvation story, transformation that we've experienced that only God could have produced, changes that we've seen him bring people from death to life, those around us, their stories, examples of great acts of sacrificial love that the beneficiaries of or seen that just make us want to cry out glory to our Father who's in heaven. See it in the moments where good triumphs over evil in ways that foreshadow final judgment at Jesus' return and indication of Christ and his people. We get glimpses of it now, don't we? If we were to take the time and had the time, everybody here could probably share some glimpse of glory where God has peeled back curtain allowed you to be privy to the glory that's to come through how he's worked in your life, through how he's working around you. So we don't lose hope. Because in following Jesus, suffering isn't an end in and of itself. Temporary suffering Jesus is alluding to, even in his own life, is just a precursor to ultimate glory. And he weighs that equally in this passage as he does the suffering that we should expect. And so, if we are to follow Jesus, this is the way of a disciple. It's a process. It's a process of learning to die to ourselves. And we do this both with a view of the cross and what Jesus has done for on, on it for us and a view of eternity in, in mind. And that's how we're able to persevere. We're gonna celebrate communion in a moment and I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. I just wanna speak to the importance of the cross, which is what we ultimately are looking at and remembering when we celebrate communion. I'd mentioned earlier how much of Jesus' teaching between chapter 16 and the end of his gospel surrounds his, his death and his suffering. It was probably uniquely to prepare his disciples who didn't have as much information they were privy to as you and I do. I think the weight Jesus gave to that teaching that Matthew's recorded for us also goes to show how critically important the cross is central doctrine that we need to keep in view were to persevere to the end in this journey of following Jesus. I think it's interesting that even after all that teaching Jesus did with Peter and the disciples, even when they got to the cross, they still scattered at that point. They still didn't fully understand, still see Jesus as defeated rather than as triumphant. 
think Peter wasn't ready to take up his cross because he didn't fully understand yet that Jesus took up his cross for Peter, for us. You find yourself hearing these words from Jesus and you're, you're hesitant to take up your cross. This teaching, communion, is an invitation to look more closely once again at what it means for Jesus have, to have took, taken up the cross and died upon it for you. We reinforce that each week as we celebrate communion, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus for our sins. What I wanna speak over you as you prepare your hearts for communion is just a few of the truths that are captured for us in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. God's holiness, that is what sin requires, was on full display on the cross. Our sins forgiven on the cross. Legal demand, the demands of the law were canceled on the cross. The issue of your value and your identity was accomplished once and for all on the cross. Shame obliterated on the cross. Satan defeated on the cross. God somehow died on the cross. God's love for you epitomized on the cross. We don't find our resolve to follow Jesus in the way of the cross an attempt to gain God's acceptance or prove ourselves. We deny ourselves and we take up our crosses because of what through death Jesus has accomplished for us once and for all. There's a hope-filled future with him where there otherwise would be none. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for that reality and that truth. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to take up our crosses, not as some sort of way of vindicating ourselves to prove our worth, but out of the overflow of what Jesus has already done for us once and for all. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.